Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I am Ben, and I'm here with my co-host, Derek. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. How's your week going? So my week is going well. Um, Like we talked about last week, uh, we were in the process of completing uh, the process of onboarding or hiring two new employees. And so two of them started this week, um, our designer and our new support engineer. Mm. So I've been spending a lot of time kind of doing tours through the Drip app, kind of giving the high level overview of, you know, how the app works and how everything pieces together Mm -hmm. to get them on board. And so it's been cool to, uh, to kind of revisit all the different areas of the product that I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to in the last few months, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of see how the whole thing pieces together and almost get an idea of what it's like for a first time user looking at drip to Mm -hmm. see how the product works. And I found myself saying a lot, you know, this area, well, we've been meaning to give more love to this area or this, we really need to redesign this part. So I think it's, you know, after, after walking through the app for hour and a half each time twice mm. this week uh, i kind of discovered some areas where you know it's going to be really good to uh to kind of revisit them and having this new designer hire is going to allow us to do that so i'm pretty excited totally yeah i i love that sort of positive pressure of uh-huh. new eyes on something yeah like for when i launched a uh, briefs that side project that i did uh we onboarded everyone manually like basically watched them sign up on a on a google hangout mm-hmm. uh, while sharing their screen and you just learn so much watching another person try to use your thing totally it's so much head slapping and inside the uh, inside the lead pages office actually they have uh, like a giant tv Mm. that has full story on all the time of just users random user sessions i uh, love it attempting to use the lead pages product and it's it's fascinating to sit there and watch it for a few minutes and and just kind of you can quickly pick out points where like ah there's probably a a ux improvement that could that's needed there you know oh i love that 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 focus i love that, mm -hmm. that like the culture that that reveals Right. That's so awesome. Much better than having a, a like a dashboard with like page views or something, you know, totally. <laughs> some vanity metric. Yeah, totally. Uh, so Cause that, that completely hides the, the rough spots. Exactly. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. How's your week going? Um, my week's going really well. I have some interesting stuff going on. So the Hound pricing project, the, the code to support the new pricing model, uh, got, I kicked it off on Monday. Uh, with two, two, a developer and a designer who are both out of our London office. I'm reminded again of sort of two things. Uh, one is that delegation is amazing. Like once you give people a thing to do and then they go off and do it, and it's like, now I don't have to do that and I can do other things. And yeah. I, I, I don't know why that doesn't permeate my brain more thoroughly, but it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is good. There's, this is a good thing. But the flip side of that is also that delegation is a leaky abstraction. Mm. So, yes, there are people working on it, but for a project, I think, of reasonable complexity, you probably can't or maybe just shouldn't point people off in a direction and then not pay any attention until it's right. done. So, we still are doing like check-ins and we're doing a call after this podcast um, to sort of talk over an issue. Um, so, it's it's 
great that I'm not doing the bulk of that work, but it doesn't mean I can just like forget about it. Right. Yeah. You just have now a different set of work and it's probably a lot less work than if you were to do it yourself, mm -hmm. but it's still, there's still work. <laughs> to totally. Yeah, yeah. And some of that is just that I have, I have feelings about how it should be done. So if I like, if, if I released more of the, I guess that I could get to a point where I was like, I don't want to talk about this. You need to make all these decisions. But I, I honestly, I think the outcome would be worse. I think it's, yeah. it's still worth doing that, the management work, I guess, mm -hmm. the project management type work. So that's progressing. Uh, and I'm reminded again of the power and flaws in delegation. Yeah, we, that's something that we kind of encounter a lot uh, working on drip. And especially I find myself in that position where we're looking through some really high value features that we want to build. And it's like, I really like the control freak in me wants to just build it myself. Cause I have an, I have a vision for how it should be done and I can mm -hmm. picture the code, even like mm. how it's all going to piece together. And you can only spec things out so far. You can't actually write the code for somebody in the spec. So you kind of have to you know, describe what it needs to do and then you hand it off and you, you know, hope that it's built the, the way you originally envisioned. But, you know, I've kind of learned this lesson over and over that a lot of times it doesn't come back exactly how I would do it. But does that really matter ultimately in the end? Right. Um, oftentimes it doesn't. And so it's just kind of learning to, to give up a little bit of control, I guess. Yeah. As I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing it's less to me about control and it's more about context. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they would make bad decisions. It's that they know less about the app and the customers and the situation and how and and all that than I do. And so when you right. come to a decision point, it's like you could certainly make a decision with your with with less knowledge, but it's going to be a little bit less good uh, mm -hmm. than if you you knew all the stuff. So it's not that mm -hmm. like because our, our the designer and developer that are working on it are both great. It's not that they like need my help to like shape right. the code or make sure it, it the UX is good. It's more like okay, we're at a trade off point. Like which trade off is better? And that's harder to answer when you're new to a project. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think oftentimes I'm I'm actually nowadays less concerned about the code being exactly how I want it, but it's more like all those tiny thousand tiny little decisions that go into a a feature or whatever someone's building. You know, I have so much knowledge about the product stored in my head mm -hmm. and it's always a gradual process getting that knowledge transferred out to other members of the team. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I think it's that that internal tension of like you know you have probably the most knowledge about the product stored in your head. So mm -hmm. figuring out how to get that communicated mm. is a challenge. You need a, uh, a uh, monitor playing a full-time full story uh, display <laughs> of what you know about the product. Exactly. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Someone invent that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Zero friction knowledge transfer. That's what we need. Yep. So um, the other big focus of my week has been validating a new product idea. Yes, I saw this. So you, you put out something on Twitter, right? I a did, link yeah. To, to your public audience. Yeah. And that was actually kind of the last step, or not the last step, but that was like a later step. And so I thought okay. I maybe I would kind of walk through what happened there. Yeah. So I've been thinking for a while that I would like to uh, launch another product at ThoughtBot. And it's... Uh, mainly motivated by I want us to try something more ambitious. Mm -hmm. I want to build something that can provide more value and thus we can charge more for and we can go after slightly larger, more sophisticated customers. And I, I feel like we're ready for this. Like Hound and Formkeep and are, are both like very small and targeted. And I think that sort of limits their upside uh, yeah. to, to an extent. And so I'm looking to, to bite off a little bit more this time. And so I've been sort of shopping around, or that's been in my mind. And the other day, I just decided on a whim to do a uh, explicit business idea brainstorming session, which I don't think I've ever done. Usually, I just kind of like things will come to me in the shower or on a flight or whatever, and I'll like I have a little notes file where I just jot down these ideas. 
Yeah. And I decided to like just try to generate as many as I could in a short period of time. And so I just sat there for 10 mm-hmm. minutes and just like sort of free associated and gave myself permission to just throw any crap that came into my mind uh, into a mm-hmm. text doc. And after about 10 or 15 minutes of that, I wrote down one and I was like, and at the end of the session, I was kind of like, oh, I really like that one. One of these like stands out to me as, as like potentially good. Yeah. And so I went into uh, a Slack room that I hang out with other software entrepreneurial type people and just said, hey, I'm thinking like w- if a thing could, if a product could do this, would it be useful? And one person responded and said, uh, let me think about it. Um, hell yes, it would be useful. And I was like, okay, that's a good sign. That is a good sign. Yeah. And so my goal at the idea point is to make sure it is a good idea. Like make sure mm-hmm. that people, it's something that people will actually pay for. Mm-hmm. And so always in the past, I have always just sort of started writing code. Been like, this, is, this idea is cool. I'm going to get really excited. And then I'll use the excitement to uh, develop as fast as I can. And then start trying to like get people to look at it or buy it. Right. Pause right there. Yeah. Uh, take me back to your brainstorming session. So you're throwing ideas out. You're yep. just kind of letting your mind go wherever it goes. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably something that a lot of people looking to start a startup engage in some mm-hmm. kind of activity like this. Mm-hmm. And I think probably really early people who don't have much experience uh, in kind of product development or validating ideas will a lot of times come up with ideas that are maybe not super viable. Mm. So I'm curious, like what, what are the filters you think that you're putting ideas through in your head as you're coming up with them? Like, are, are you thinking about, you know, I'd like to target a specific market. Do you have specific markets in mind in your head? Um, just kind of like talk me through like what. That's a good question. Um, I don't think I had considered any of that really. I was just, I was trying to do it as freely as possible. Mm-hmm. I think I was intentionally not putting constraints on it. Okay. It was just like, just think of a word, like think of like LTV or ROI or whatever. And like, what, like, maybe I was thinking about people. And so so the idea that I did come up with that that was the one I want to talk about that was most exciting to me was something that was a problem for me, Mm -hmm. was a, came out of concern I had. But during Mm -hmm. that process, I was actually thinking of this as like the first session of many. Got it. I was, I was thinking of, I think it was Heaton Shaw who said that there was a a phase, I think before they started Crazy Egg, where he and his partner like tested like 30 different businesses mm-hmm. or something like that. And I loved that idea because it just sort of gets away from the idea of like, and or it gets away from the thought that an idea is special. Right. It's like, okay, let's, let's come up with a bunch of ideas and then we'll sort of, we'll do some validation on those things and see what's actually good. Right. So basically trying to eliminate all assumptions you may have about the viability of some idea and just saying like, you know what, let's just come up with ideas and then Take our best guess and validate a bunch of them and see what yeah, see what surfaces. Totally. Yeah. And it, actually, this this session I did came out of a to do item I put on my system, which was uh, schedule a regular time to do this. Like hmm. do this more often. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you force yourself to come up with forty ideas once a week or twice a week or whatever, you probably I think you get better at it. Like you're, you're training right. your brain to to spot those opportunities and such yeah so yeah. my original thought was like do this a bunch and this will be the first session of many and i Got happened to, to generate one that seemed interesting and so I've, i took it a little further in the process but cool. I, i'd actually like to go back and, and do that again yeah because i'm, I'm trying so I'm, it's, it's interesting for me because normally i get very excited about things i almost have like bipolar not mm-hmm. not like real bipolar but like my my interest level in projects tends to follow a, a shape where i get mm-hmm. so into it that i can't really sleep uh, because I'm thinking about it so much. And then like often there'll be a point where I'm like, and now I'm done with this. And right. the idea of looking at it makes me want to vomit. 
Yeah. Have you ever listened to the uh, the podcast Tech Zing by mm-hmm. Justin Vincent and Jason Roberts? Mm-hmm. They coined this term called the madness, where mm. like it's like the the feeling you get after coming up with some idea that you're just super obsessed with. Yes. And, and it's like that experience you talked about of not being able to sleep. It's all you can think about. It's all you can work on. And I think then the challenge is to once you get past the madness, other people may call it the honeymoon phase. Mm. And it's like, can you stick it out for the long haul? And, totally. You know, and, and, and I sort of, I kind of like this about myself and I kind of hate it about myself because basically everything takes a long time and repeated effort. And so you sure. can't rely on that, like the madness to be enough. Yep. And so like it works for me for side projects because I'll get crazy about a thing. And then when I want to, I can just stop doing it. But right. it works less well for like real businesses that you're going to start at work, for example. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so I'm trying to like use that to my advantage where I can but also be aware that it's not a good tool for long-term motivation by any means. And so I need right. I need to show... The War of Art, by the way, is kind of all about this, uh, about the idea that like you can't wait for passion. Passion is mm-hmm. not a, a good tool to use to motivate yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be yeah. a professional, you got to show up even when there's no passion. Yeah, it runs out eventually. Yeah, for sure. So going back to uh, where I uh, left off. So yep. I pitched that idea in the chat, and one person was really excited about it. And so I asked him if he would get on a call with me. And since this idea was related to marketing, he suggested that his head of marketing join the call, which also was another good sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I pitched them again, sort of the idea on the... Well, I tried to not really pitch them so much as learn about them. So now I'm like, okay, this might be a good idea. And uh, now I want to learn to make sure that uh, the people I might want to sell this to actually have this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe at this point I should... Uh, just talk about what the idea is a little bit. Yeah, let's hear it. So the gist is, it probably would be nice if you knew the average revenue per user and lifetime value generated by each piece of content on your blog. Mm. So imagine following a customer as they view different pieces of your content marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You track all that. When they become a customer, rather than just saying, okay, there was the conversion, like it worked, you connect with your billing source as well and then you watch them over time as they are charged money as they upgrade plans perhaps as they switch to an annual customer Uh, you just sort of note all that and then you have dollars in revenue to map back to different blog posts with some sort of attribution model Mm. the idea kind of came to me because we hired someone to do content marketing for Formkeep. Mm-hmm. And the report they would send me each month about the performance of the content marketing was focused on views and shares. And it's like, okay, like that's a decent proxy. I can, that's, it's just interesting to know how many people saw it, but that's not, you can't pay rent on the office with views and shares. Right. Uh, and what I really wanted to know was, am I getting ROI on the money I'm paying you? And they couldn't answer that. And I didn't have a great way of answering that with some digging and some, some work I could answer that, I think. Mm-hmm. But so I was like, maybe other people have this problem. The, I mean, technically, the, the rough idea is just uh, is like a tracking pixel type thing and paying attention when they become a customer. Then you can associate that anonymous blog visitor with a, an email address. And then if you connect to Stripe as well, let's say, uh, you can connect that email address to actual payments. Right. And so there's a dashboard, which is here's all your content sorted by average revenue per user that it's uh, attributed to or can be attributed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea because I like that it ties so closely to dollar figures. Like mm-hmm. it's it's actually giving you back insights about how much money you're making. And I really like that because it's often a difficult insight to achieve, as we know from, from generic 
platforms like Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we have something similar in Drip where you know we have conversion goals that you can define, and then we attempt to link back when a conversion occurs we attempt to attribute it to the last delivery that person received and then of course you can look in their subscriber timeline you can see everything they've received Mm -hmm. and you know the idea when we had that was to say like if someone sets up their conversion goal they can actually determine how much money they've made from using drip Mm -hmm. and that was kind of the original vision was to was to be able to quantify that for somebody Mm -hmm. so i have a question for you um I see on your um, landing page that you mentioned doing multi-step attribution or whatever the term is for that. Multi-touch. Multi-touch attribution. So do you have an idea of how you're going to bundle that up in the product? Like, how are you going to be able to say this one post earned you X dollars if they viewed 10 posts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is... It's interesting going into a market that I'm not familiar with because this is sort of an open area of discussion and debate within the marketing community. Sure. And so there are a number of different models that people will employ. So mm-hmm. it sounds like Drip, for example, is using last touch attribution. Whatever yeah. the last thing they got or saw or did, that's where the money gets distributed. First touch right. is the opposite. The approach that I'm leaning towards right now, although honestly this will be defined, uh, this is a big question mark for me that I, I feel like early access beta type people are going to need to answer. Like, this is what I want to talk to customers about in particular. This is one of yeah. my big things. But there's mul- there's a way to do um, time decay attribution. Mm-hmm. So every blog post they saw should get some credit because it was part of their journey. Each bit right. probably built some trust and some brand recognition. The stuff that happened longer ago is probably had less of an impact. Um, the later stuff, like the last thing they saw is what f- finally got them to take action and to sign up. Mm-hmm. And so it should probably get some more. So one model is like a time decay. Basically, you, you attribute less to the older stuff, more to the newer stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will add kind of spikes on the ends. So like the first thing they saw was that what got them in the door. And the last thing they saw is what got them just to buy. And the stuff in the middle should maybe get a little bit less. So you can have like right. a bathtub curve kind of attribution. Yep. And and I, I think the answer here is that there's no answer. None of these are right. And so right. I'm going to hope to kind of pick one that's good to start, but also pay. I want to ask kind of everyone that's interested in this product, like what makes sense to you? Mm-hmm. But I, I think this is just kind of a hard problem. Yeah. Do you think it's even feasible potentially to have like multiple different ways of computing? So yes. within the product, yes. so you can choose like, do you want... Do you want first and last, or do you want decay, or do you want last touch only? Or? I have a sneaking suspicion this is something I will have to build. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, this, if this becomes a thing, is like, but I want to use this model. I'm like, all right, fine. Like, I think we're going to have to support multiple of these. Another yeah. suggestion that I, I got that I liked was potentially using Bayesian inference. Mm-hmm. So rather than try to come up with a model that says, this is how we should attribute, do attribution, we let statistics kind of figure it out. So just just feed the model all the conversions and what blog posts those people saw and let it figure out the probability that a blog post is actually influencing that conversion Mm -hmm. and so um, that's very hand wavy which is my level of understanding at this of this at this point but there may be some interesting stats we can do uh where we we just let the model figure it out as opposed to try to use human smarts yeah that could be a definitely an asset for your product is just to be able to say like we have some kind of proprietary algorithm that we use for Mm -hmm for determining this and it's you you have to kind of back that with data like Mm -hmm. uh, we had something similar with hit tail there was an algorithm that it was a pretty simple algorithm but 
you could still call it an algorithm that mm-hmm. determined which keywords were, were likely to increase your SEO value of your website. Yep. And there was data to back it up because you can't just say we have an algorithm and then assume that people will trust that it's actually legitimate. Right, but exactly. Provided that you have some data, then, you know, that's an asset because that's not something that someone could easily uh, copy. Right. So, yeah. And I think there's some there's some interesting data that we could get, assuming that there were a lot of customers. You could say mm-hmm. across the customer base, we're seeing this sort of like time to conversion. Or mm-hmm. like maybe we can feed a giant model across all these like maybe B2B SaaS companies and start mm-hmm. to come up with some interesting aggregate knowledge. Right. That would make some, you know, juicy clickbait and such. Yeah. That's cool. So you have so you have your landing page up and mm. you've So you've the landing page Yeah, landing page came last uh, in okay. or, or so far. So I did this I did this call with that that CEO and his head of marketing and mm. pitched them on it. And then at the end of the call, they're like, "Yes, yes, we like this." And so I took a deep breath and said, "What sounds expensive as a price that you would still pay for this?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Uh, like $125 a month or something like that." And I was like, "Okay, I really want to make sure that you actually do want this and I, and like you don't just think the idea is cool. And so I would like to right now charge you for three months at $100 a month. And if we end up not building this, uh, I'll refund it. And if we build it and you hate it, I'll refund it. But otherwise, that'll serve as like your first quarter of payments for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said yes, and they paid. Nice. Uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and so a product I haven't made yet. Uh, haven't, so we have zero lines of code and revenue, which is kind of interesting. Yep. Um, so my hope is to find more people like that. And that's where the landing page came from. Got it. Uh, so it's like, okay, I am going to work uh, within my network to sort of see who I can get referrals to. But mm-hmm. also, I want to draw in people that I don't know. And so I spent some time uh, whipping up a landing page that made the pitch. And people can sort of sign up for early access. And then if they, and so if you enter your email address on that landing page, uh, I store that away. But then I send you to a, a survey to learn a bit, little bit more about the company. And one mm-hmm. of the questions there is like, are you interested in participating in like an early beta access group to help shape the product, kind of have a seat at the table? Right. Uh, and the people that say yes, I'll kind of research their company and then get in touch and see if I can get them to come in and, uh, and prepay. Yeah, that's cool. I, I like the follow-up question. So I submitted my email address just this morning uh, uh-huh. on your landing page. And, nice. and then I saw the type form. form and I think, that's, I think that's a good idea to basically pre-qualify the people who are getting onto your list so that you know, like, if this person is a solo person, uh, doesn't have really any content marketing going on right now, then they're probably not the ideal person for you to be talking to. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. 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 So we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm trying not to get the madness about this idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of like, I'm validating an idea right now. Right. And we'll see if like if I can, this is actually an inter- interesting test, I think, is can I reach marketing type people? Mm-hmm. Because that's not my audience. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like a good micro test of what's it like to try to cut through the noise of there's a lot of people targeting online internet marketer types sure, uh, in a very sophisticated way. And so yep. it's a noisy, crowded marketplace. And so this will be a kind of a good like small test of like, what's it like to try to go after these people? Yeah. Are you aware of any competition for this product? Um, a little bit. And that's kind of, that kind of scares me, actually. Mm-hmm. I haven't found anyone that talks about it quite like I am right now, it mm-hmm. seems like. Um, there is a thing called uh, Attribution App. Mm-hmm. And they seem very focused on these sort of calculations for paid acquisition. So okay. they, they have native integrations with AdWords and Facebook ads or something. And so they will do these calculations for you on your paid campaigns. Mm-hmm. And it looks like their tool is fairly flexible so that you can send them various events and you could calculate things for other channels. Like they'll show you ROI on other channels. But my thought with, with this idea is to integrate with Stripe directly or like and maybe, maybe eventually additional payment processors mm-hmm. because I don't want you to have to tell me when people pay you. 
because I feel like that's kind of a no-go for marketers. Right. Like, are you going to send me an event when they upgrade their plan and what the prorated amount you charged them was? And then when their account went unpaid for six months and then they started back up again? Like all these sort of things, like you need programming skills to know where to hook into the process. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people, we don't even do this, for example. I don't send f- like further Stripe payment events up through mm-hmm. segments when they come in. Mm-hmm. You have to like catch their webhook and such. Right. Yeah. Most people stop at the initial signup step. You know, they maybe they'll track an event through all their analytics system saying someone became a customer or made a purchase for the first time. But mm-hmm. then to actually track cancellation, upsell, all that kind of stuff. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. So my hope is basically to find people using Stripe and Segment and say, mm-hmm. enable our pixel with Segment and mm-hmm. off with Stripe. And then you're done as long as you send that identify call. Yeah, which is where like you identify you link the anonymous visitor to the eventual customer profile. Right. And so it once that's set up, which is kind of one of the core things you have to do to get any value out of segment anyway. So presumably mm-hmm. anyone who's using segment has done this. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't need any more programming, which to me could be potentially pretty powerful for marketing types who are sophisticated, care about ROI, are investing heavily in content marketing, but don't have a programmer they can get to do things to you know, right. give them the analytics they need. Yeah, that sounds smart. Cool. I like it. Nice. I talked to Zach, actually, from Drip. Uh, yeah. I reached out to you and asked if I could, you would connect us, and you did. And so he and I had a really great chat. And he pointed out something interesting, which I hadn't really thought about, which is like, he said, you might want to be careful with this because he said, I, I would guess that most content marketing at like most places does not have a positive ROI on dollars spent. Mm. And so you could be trying to sell a product to people that will get them fired. That is an interesting insight. Have you thought about how you might overcome that, that issue? Um, not really. I mean, there's, so the, the one person who has prepaid is the, the CEO and the CEO mm-hmm. seemed more interested in it than the head of marketing did, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if that's partly that. Right. So it may be that the person that buys the product is different actually than the head of marketing. It might be a CEO type who wants to know about the return on their marketing efforts. And also what I'm hoping is that, that content marketing is, is working for some companies, <laughs> Like, yeah. like hopefully like, like you're not a good customer for us if you content marketing is truly failing for you and is nowhere in the ballpark of working mm-hmm. so if you don't acquire a lot of customers through that channel already it's probably not a good fit right seems like you could also build into the product some ways to intelligently recommend ways they can improve their content marketing like mm-hmm. maybe maybe it's uh maybe your algorithm is able to identify that it's frequency of posting that's hurting them or maybe it's mm. like I don't know. It maybe it appears that people are not like the content is not relevant for the market that they're serving or something like that. Like mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of insights you'll be able to harvest out of the data that you collect, but yeah. uh, it seems like if you can bill it as two things, one as something that will tell you what your ROI is currently and two will give you help on how to improve your ROI. Totally. I think that's that's a core piece. Um yeah. and that I feel like that second part should fall out of the first part. Mm-hmm. Like if you real like my guess is Having never calculated this, I'm actually really really curious to see what it looks like. My guess is that there's kind of like a power law distribution where mm-hmm. 20% of your posts are responsible for a lot of the result. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And so like there are certain topics or certain titles or ways of writing or whatnot that are outperforming others by a good margin. Mm-hmm. And so by doing more of that, hopefully you should get a much better return on the future efforts. Right. And you know what you can kill. And like if you have like, let's say you have like two or three posts that are standing way out and just like crushing it, then like drive traffic to those buy some ads yep. for those like you now have targets to send people towards 
yeah, so identifying those can help you guide your strategy. Guide your strategy. It's not like we're just giving you the information and now you can either uh, determine if you're a success or a failure. Right. Like, exactly. You can, Here's you your letter grade. To, Goodbye. Right. Right. Yeah. You can use that to to shape your your strategy moving forward. So totally. To me, that's that's kind of the the whole point. Like the the numbers are interesting, but it's the fact that once you know them, you're empowered to do stuff. Right. Cool. So that's been an interesting process. So if if all that sounds interesting to you, uh, go check it out. We'll put a, a link in the notes to that landing page. But I'm uh, this is I'm I'm trying to think of this right now as like one of the uh, irons in the fire, mm-hmm. and not go into the madness and just kind of like say like yeah I'm I'm currently validating this idea. If we reach roughly like ten people, if ten people mm-hmm. prepay, then that's pretty exciting. Yeah, uh, and that probably means it's worth building an MVP of this. Right. Uh, but if not, that's okay too. And I'm going to keep brainstorming and thinking of other things. Cool. Well, congrats on getting the amount of interest you've gotten so far. And well, thanks. I look forward to hearing the updates on uh, on how it progresses. Yeah, totally. Me too. Cool. So why don't we spend a couple minutes, because we said we would, talking about your billing engine. Yeah, so it's something that kind of comes up frequently as I'm talking to people. And specifically, we have conversations around the merits of using something like Stripe subscriptions versus building your own billing engine. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be interesting to just kind of dive into a few of the things that we've encountered along the way that have basically validated that building our own billing engine was the right move for Drip. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just to give people food for thought about if you're building a new product and you're considering whether to use a use an existing solution to roll your own, uh, what are some things that you maybe want to be thinking about? Yep. Love it. So the first kind of maybe unique quality about Drip's billing is that we have infinite plans. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the pricing page, there are four tiers, I believe, listed on there and then uh, or maybe three tiers and a kind of enterprise high volume tier. Mm-hmm. And so basically our plans work like a step function where it's it's based loosely on the number of subscribers you have and it kind of goes up in steps. So if you fall in a particular range, then we figure out what plan is appropriate for your number of subscribers in your account. So this can be tricky because a lot of systems like Stripe subscriptions want you to have predefined discrete plans. And so uh, being able to just have our own billing engine, basically run it through a formula and figure out what plan is appropriate has been something really valuable for Drip. Mm. Another factor kind of related to that is the fact that we will auto adjust you based on your usage. So, you know, we're check basically on a daily basis. We run something in the background that checks to see how many subscribers you have in your account. And if you're exceeding your current plan limits, then we'll auto upgrade you to the plan that fits your needs and inform you of that. And we won't bill you right away. I mean, it just basically puts you on a new plan. So when your billing cycle renews, we will charge you the new amount. Another term for this is high watermark billing, which Mm -hmm. basically allows us to say, you know, if you reach if you reach a certain level of usage, we we upgrade you to that plan. And then if you decide to delete a bunch of your subscribers, well, you you at one point had that made in your account. So you'll be billed for that much at the end of your current billing period. But then after we bill you, we'll figure out again, like, do you need to be downgraded to a lower plan? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So there's that factor. Also, an- another big factor that we considered is wanting to be able to grandfather people in to a particular pricing structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are currently on, I think, V3 billing of Drip. When When we started out, actually, we had a completely different way of calculating usage. When Drip started out, we build you based on the number of new subscribers added to your account on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. uh, rather than the total number of subscribers in your account. Huh. And so this, we, we thought we were being really clever, like, <laughs> 
<laughs> like, yeah, basically you're being successful with drip if you're gathering new leads. So we'll only bill you on the months where you've actually collected a bunch of new leads from your website. Yeah. So I feel like this is the start of like all kinds of pain in, yeah. in, around pricing models where it starts with, we thought we were being really clever, comma. Right. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like when we were talking about like your yep. the hound pricing and whether you do it per pull request, it kind of reminded me of, of our V1 billing of drip where mm-hmm. it's like, Yes, it, it aligns with value in many ways, but it's just a little too clever, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, you know, ultimately, we we moved away from that. But we still have a few people who are on V1 billing right now. And so if you look at our code base and how we actually model our billing engine, I mean, we literally have namespaced classes in there. So there's a billing V1 namespace and a billing V2. Mm, wow. And each subscription has a version number on it. So basically, when our billing engine runs and when the auto adjuster runs, it checks to see if you're on V1 billing, then it executes the code that lives under the V1 namespace. And so it can use a whole different set of usage calculations and formulas uh, based on the tier, the, the version of billing that you're on. Hmm. That sounds clever, but also like a lot of code to maintain. Like, Does that give rise to complexity when you're thinking about billing stuff? You know, it really doesn't because we, I mean, we haven't touched V1 billing code for two years um, mm-hmm. and it just runs, you know, it, it's well tested uh, and there's not really a whole lot to decay there because it's really just some, some calculations of usage, some formulas for figuring out what pricing tier they should be on. And then there's shared code that actually, you know, hits the Stripe API and, and charges the customer and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So really, if you boil it down to what is unique about each version of billing there's really just a, f- a few things that are unique hmm. so the maintenance burden is actually pretty low huh. so you just are manually creating charges in stripe for people yep based on your own calculations of what the the number should be right and and you're yeah. ignoring the stripe subscription stuff entirely that's right mm-hmm. yep okay and so i have built on the stripe subscriptions api before with code tree mm-hmm. and um i think you've you've mentioned feeling the same pain of like you need to maintain a bunch of the state that is stored in Stripe, you have to keep that in your own database anyways because you need to know whether a subscription is in, tr- in a trial, whether they're active, whether they're delinquent, you know, all these different states. Mm-hmm. And also if you ever want to do, if you want to present transactions, transaction records in your UI, or you want to offer some kind of custom invoice, or you just want to run some metrics across those transactions, it's fine if you can utilize a product like Metrics or something like that. But if you need to do something manual, it's it's helpful to have those transaction records in your own database anyways. Mm-hmm. So when you look at all the data that you want in your own database, it's actually a majority of what is stored in the Stripe system if you're using Stripe subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So then it just becomes a, a burden of like keeping those two in sync and consuming all the Stripe webhooks. And so I think, you know, ultimately looking at how Drip's billing engine works, I'm not sure we would actually be saving a whole lot by utilizing Stripe subscriptions because of all the uh, kind of unique challenges that we have with our billing engine. Hmm. Interesting. If you were starting a new product, would you you do that again? I think it would depend on, you know, if the product is a finite set of simple tiers, uh-huh. I would probably look into Stripe subscriptions. But if there's anything like metered billing, auto adjustment, basically an infinite number of plans, mm-hmm. um, then I would probably go down the route of a of a custom rolled billing engine again. Hmm. Hmm. I think there's one one more facet of that that I want to yeah, yeah. that I want to mention mm-hmm. is the way we do our annual billing, and I feel like it's 
we, we've arrived at a pretty good solution. And if you look around at other products that have metered billing, very few of them offer annual because it's really difficult to figure out how to do this in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So basically, if someone wants to buy an annual plan of drip, we can compute what we need to charge them given their current plan level. But the challenge arises when, you know, say next month, they go over their usage and now they're on a new plan level. What do you do? Do you charge them some kind of prorated annual subscription amount? You know, that very likely doesn't jive with their accounting department because the accounting is expecting them to make one payment and then not have to make another payment until, you know, hopefully a year down the line. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of challenge there. So what we end up doing is kind of building the system based on storing amount of credit on your subscription. So when you buy an annual plan of drip, we charge you for the next 12 months of your current plan, but we only we only bill you for 10 months worth. So we give you a a discount, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you're on the 49 plan. We charge you $490, and then we put, I think it's $588 worth of credit on your account. Mm-hmm. And then each month, we chip away at that credit. We, so we keep your monthly billing cycle running as normal, and we chip away at that credit that's on file. Mm-hmm. So if you get upgraded, you'll just basically chew through that credit faster. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you'll drop below the level needed to bill for your next month. So then we say, hey, it looks like you've already run through your annual credit. It's time to re-up and bill you for the next year. Mm-hmm. And so that system has been working well for us for, I think, a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on that plan, and it, it works. I get it. Yeah. I get the emails. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It was a concern of, like, are people going to be totally confused by this? We were, we were nervous to do it up front. If you go to our annual upgrade page, we have, like, two paragraphs of text there mm-hmm. that's like, all right, here's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, it's, it's actually worked out pretty well. So Nice. Yeah. Hmm. Do you remember what the upfront time was for like V1 billing, roughly? How long it took you? So we we started collecting payments before we even had a billing engine built. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the earliest billing engine was Rob logging into Stripe and making manual charges. Nice. <laughs> and then uh, after that, I I would say it was probably a, maybe a week worth of development time, all said and done, to mm-hmm. get our first hmm. version of it built. Interesting. That's le- that's less than I would have guessed. Yeah. And it started out pretty simple and we've we've gradually added more things on top of it. So, you know, we didn't used to have version billing. Obviously, when we had V1, we didn't namespace it as V1. So kind of building out the the versioning infrastructure definitely added development time. But just to get a basic like maintaining state of a subscription, maintaining their expiration date and then making a charge when it comes due and advancing that expiration date, like all that is pretty basic code. Mm-hmm. I will say that this this area of the code base probably gets the least amount of refactoring because it's it's one of the most critical things not to break. Right, totally. So, you know, I was just adding something to it the other day and and some methods were starting to get really long, but <laughs> kind of the risk of refactoring sometimes outweighs the desire to have it uh, well factored. But, yeah, are there I assume there are tests automated tests in place for that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, lots of tests, yeah. lots of tests. Okay. Yeah. But you're still a little bit nervous. Still a little bit nervous, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You're giving me food for thought. Yeah. I can't say I've been like super happy with using Stripe subscriptions because mm-hmm. of the reasons you mentioned, in particular, just mm-hmm. like the syncing of state between the two. Yeah. Uh, if you could offload it entirely, that would be one thing, but you can't. It's a it's a very leaky abstraction, I would say. Yeah. And so it kind of it handles a couple things for you, but you end up doing a lot of it yourself. Right. And so yeah. Man, we, we actually do have a, f- a fair amount of support code anyway. And so mm-hmm. it's like, how much is left that Stripe is actually doing logic-wise for us? Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I found with Code Tree. Like, like it felt like I was sure writing a lot of billing code for having someone else handling the, yeah. the actual subscription payments. Yeah. You know, I'm curious to try something like a Recurly that you know mm-hmm. supposedly handles more. I've been meaning to give that a shot. Although other people have looked into it and said, yeah, it's sort of the same situation. Like you, you end up handling a bunch of it anyway. Right. So it may just be that there's not a way to abstract over this entirely in today. Yeah, that'd be a hell yep. of a business, though. By the way. Oh yeah, yeah. If, if if you could make that really good and easy, that would be pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so next week, I'm going to be chatting with Nick Gauthier, uh, who is a local Boston person running a very young but going well startup. And so we're going to be talking about his business called Meat Space. And cool. uh, I'm looking forward to hear like the nitty gritty of a not so far along getting started thing. But then yeah. uh, you'll be coming back after some weeks of that, and we'll check in with you and see what's going on in Dripland. Cool. But I wanted to thank you for being an awesome co-host. It's been like super great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on and inviting me um, on in the first place and forcing me to get out of my my shell a little bit. Yes. It's been a great experience. I feel like it's been a good opportunity for personal growth for me to overcome the fear of getting on the mic. Yes. So. The, your comfort zone is now a larger zone. It is. It Excellent. Is. <laughs> I'm, I'm super glad to hear that. Uh, well, thanks again. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Today's show was produced and edited by Keep Tom and Carry On Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 213. Thanks for listening.